Since March 2020, the news headlines and the focus of the various governments around the world have been dominated by the challenge of COVID-19, and quite understandably so. There is, however, an even bigger challenge for the world, but it's one that we are capable of overcoming. It's the challenge of climate change. This podcast series begins to take a conversational look at the challenge that climate change brings, but more importantly, we embark on a positive examination of some of the people, the businesses, the technology, and the solutions that exist. The examples of organisations who are having great success, improving that with the right plans and commitments, we can save our planet. In our first introductory podcast, my co-host Mark Johnston Wood and I introduce ourselves. We share a little of our backgrounds, we set out some of our experience of climate change, and more importantly, we talk about some of the subjects and guests we plan to have on future shows. I got the first podcast underway by asking Mark Johnston Wood to share some of his life and career background. So I started off, um, my passion was actually gardening, and I... Um, managed to fail my A-levels because I, I was so busy gardening and doing little gardening businesses. Second round, I went to, um, I managed to pass. I went to work for a company my first year out as a garden centre deputy manager. Then I went to Rittle Agricultural College, which is near Chelmsford. And I did an HND in landscape and amenity horticulture. And that was all set up to be a technical officer for the local authority in their parks and gardens. And uh, the same year that I qualified, the government decided to do compulsory competitive tendering and there weren't any jobs. So uh, that was the end of that career. <laughs> so then we then I went into, uh, I did some retraining and went into uh, the construction industry. I started working as an apprentice with Salvation Army as a training project manager and I worked up through the organization I qualified with a degree in project management building management and then uh, became a chartered surveyor so I went, worked for them for about 17 years and I spent the last five years being the director of the estates and facilities across the UK and Europe they have and had had then and still have farms schools offices conference centers hotels um, old people's homes, all sorts of things. And, and I really got such a good training and background in how the construction industry actually works, but also how you can affect a change. So we had to go from one of the big things there was elder person centres where old people were at the time in the 90s given a, a little room with about 11 feet square. And that was their their room there, or 11, yeah, but it wasn't, wasn't a lot bigger, where their bed was in and that was it. Um, all sorts of shapes and sizes and the government brought out um, a new set of standards and I had to, uh, I was responsible for refurbishing and project managing 40 new old people's homes and that was really the start of getting into then, okay, how does this work? So very briefly, because I know as I said I can go for hours on this, the next thing I did was I worked for um, an organisation called the Inner Temple. The Inner Temple is where all the judges and barristers and QCs, etc., have their chambers and also you've got the um, treasury there. Um, it's just off Fleet Street. It's a grade one listed pile of properties. It was the first place, linking back to my gardening days, it was the first place where the RHS had uh, um, an open gardens like um, competition. So every year they used to have a gardens competition there. And um, it was very interesting working with barristers and judges because they're very, very particular about how they want things. And you are not allowed to um, to do things in certain hours and they'd shut you down and they'd uh, do all sorts of things. One of the very funniest things I found out was 
it was there they wrote the legislation for the Disability Discrimination Act. But the building they wrote it in, which was in King's Bench Walk, um, you couldn't get into because it wasn't DDA compliant. So I had to, as part of my job there, make it DDA compliant to the compliance that they created. That's a, a funny little story. <laughs> It's interesting, Mark. So already some of the stuff you're saying is triggering things, questions, discussion points that I'd like to have with you. You mentioned the size of accommodation and how you were then helping create homes for older people. Mm. And over the years, I've worked in very many different industry sectors, you know, including touching on the edges of the property, particularly in relation to holiday property. Mm. And that's pushed me down the path of learning about some of the new, more modern ways of putting buildings up that are more energy efficient. And so I've developed quite a passion now for believing that we human beings, and as you know, there are 7 billion of us, we human beings take up too much space. Our homes are, are far bigger than what they really need to be. We seem as a race generally to have become infatuated with having big houses and status symbols. And all of that doesn't lend itself to protecting the climate, particularly with population growth as it is. I think back in the 1950s, the population was 2.2 billion. Here we are 70 years later, over 7 billion, and we will eventually get to 10 billion when it will start to level off. As you know, in most major countries around the world, I'm talking about the UK, France, Germany, Spain, Italy, Ireland, there is an acute residential housing shortage. And yet, whilst we're seeing green shoots of construction companies popping up and coming up with these, let's call them micro homes, smaller homes, intelligent homes, my view is it's really not catching on as quickly as it needs to, Mark. What's your view on that? Yeah, so as we're talking about, uh, so I was on a webinar yesterday, the universities and healthcare uh, estates innovation conference and there were uh, Catherine Dupre from NHS Scotland was on there and a number of other people and they were talking about a thing called passive house and passive house is basically the ultimate in construction in terms of um, thermal conductivity all those sort of things in terms of getting the, the least amount of energy to warm the space so and, and also creating it out of um, out of construction materials and methods that are not um, impinging on the environment. And the problem there is there's two, there's two issues. One is the cost to actually put this stuff in, which is for a very high cost. But the other one is the actual um, the procurement process that you have to go through for, for local authorities, etc. The procurement process means that because of the high cost and the also the big long payback period, you can't get these things off the ground. So you have to keep reverting back to the poorer ways of sustainability construction, sustainable construction in the uh, public sector. Mm. The private sector has to lead that. And the, the private sector is looking at the bottom line in terms of profits, especially at the moment with the issues we've got. So I think it's it's to do with there's a real willingness now. So uh, one of the biggest areas of growth in terms of sustainable accommodation is students, student accommodation and universities. And the drive there is from the students themselves because they're they're speaking with one voice saying we want this to happen, mm. whereas other parts of you know the, the public sector haven't got the student body to to be so vociferous, and therefore it's not happening. 
So I think there's there's a willingness to do it. It's just how you do it in a cost-effective way. Yeah, it's interesting, Mark. And on future episodes, we'll get some of the contacts that you and I have got on and let them talk about some of these things in more elaborate detail. But a few years ago, I went to visit a factory up in Scotland. And this factory produces all sorts of buildings, including commercial and residential, up to three stories. And they use a method called structured insulated panels, which are carbon neutral. Yeah, what goes into the panel is is actually carbon neutral. And when I first went up there, I was incredibly skeptical about the strength of something which, frankly, to look at it, looks like compressed foam sandwiched between two pieces of tantalized wood. So that was my viewpoint. This surely is not strong enough. And then, obviously, you then get enlightened to the history of it. And structured insulated panel buildings have been around in America for almost 100 years. And here's the kicker which surprised me because the the gentleman that received me, a guy called Pat Queen, who is the MD of that company, then brought out a piece of this panel for me to hold in my hand and he gave it me and it was lightweight. And that just reinforced what I I felt about, can this stand up to weight? Can it be weight bearing? Can it stand up to the weather? Is it waterproof? And then he systematically brought down all of my objections. For example, the structured insulated panel under crush to destruction tests in the lab was three times stronger than brick and block and seven times stronger than timber and was something like the houses were something like 60% more energy efficient and site waste was 90% less. So I developed this huge passion. And so he invited me down to a housing estate in Bristol where they'd built 10 houses, 10 residential houses uh, on this site. And those houses, I think, all sold for about £300,000. And at the time, he got a, what, let's call it a show house, but it, was, it wasn't it was full of furniture or anything like that. It was literally just designed for you to go in and see it. And this was a, a three-bedroom house. You might put it into the bracket of a social housing-type house. But because of the nature of the panels, the roof was immediately usable. So in most houses, you've got a roof that means you'd have to convert it. Well, with this, the the roof is already insulated. And I was shocked when he told me that the house that we were stood in, the kit for it was £23,000 for what essentially is a four-bedroom house. And then so I said to him, what would it cost to make this key ready? In other words, tiles on the roof flooring, kitchen, bathroom, windows, guttering, electrics, etc. And he said about £65,000. And the other thing that he told me, which was also fascinating, Mark, was that a house like that, if you're building a house like that out of brick, it can take anything from sort of 25 to 30 weeks to get the superstructure up, whereas a house like that will be up in seven days, ready for you to then think about, you know, getting your plumbers, your electricians in. So, there are a few SIP panel companies around the UK now, and they're propping up more and more. There are also modular builders out there as well, which I'd love for us to get on our podcast. But really talking not just about cost, which is your point was, you know, it can be too expensive, but also let's deal with that. But also the other challenges that confront us. And one of the things that I learned through that little mini crusade that I went on with the structured insulated panel buildings was it became apparent to me that modular and structured insulated panels for residential the banks have still not opened up lending on them in the same way. You know, and interestingly, I went on another crusade then. I contacted every single chief exec of every lending bank in the UK, wrote to them by recorded delivery and said, why are you not opening up to something that is proven to be as strong as any brick house? And to their credit, I think three banks came back to me 
Um, I won't mention them, but they did come back to me and wanted to engage in more positive discussions. But property, which is, of course, the relevance to me and you on this, Mark, is it's facilities management, buildings, construction is really your background and, and your mm. expertise. So I think in the future, we can really start to drill down into environmentally friendly building options and, and, and really tackle that question head on. Is it something that can compare to building in, let's call it the more old-fashioned way. Going back to you then, Mark, when did you first begin to appreciate in that very experienced career that you had what a challenge climate change was going to create for the world, what was created, and at what point did you develop a passion to try and do something about it? So it's a sort of a coalescence of all these things. So I just I pick up on something you said there, David, as well, about modular building. So uh, at the same time as I got very much involved and passionate about climate change and about the carbon footprint of organisations, I was also responsible for the rollout of um, new hostels at the Salvation Army. And they have um, about 100 hostels across the UK. And um, I worked with a number of companies, Unite Housing, uh, Mansells, um, as a structural engineering firm, and we were looking at modular building. And Unite Housing have, you see them everywhere now, they, they provide um, student accommodation. And that was along the lines you're talking about, it was timber timber construction panels, all sorts of things. And they, they create these jigs where they could literally build, I can't remember how many minutes, but for to construct a whole room, they could build it in a few minutes. And that, that not only with the materials, but also the time saving and the distance of the um, manufacturing centre to the place where it's going to be constructed means that you can reduce the carbon footprint in all sorts of ways so I was, I was very much interested in that and then so it's around about the year 2002 or three and there were various reports coming out about the climate and where we were going with it and prince charles was speaking very openly about the problems that we've got and I'd got two children then, and I realised that he, you know, the, the thing was, they reckon by, uh, when was it? So it would have been about four years ago, so we were in our 2021, 20, about 2017. There was an estimate that by 2017, the polar ice caps would be in a real mess. Um, and there were people saying, well, if we don't do something now, that was back in 2003 or four. Yeah then it's going to be a serious problem. And so um, I, with uh, a couple of colleagues, um, we tried to set up a company called The Tear Garden. And it, was, it was after Rufus Wainwright's um, song, Tear Garden. And it was uh, sort of, it was ahead of its time, really. And what we looked at, we worked with an organisation that could measure the carbon footprint of every single product that you bought. And so we I spoke with Martin Lewis of martinlewis.com or the money saving expert. Yeah. I spoke with I spoke with Jeremy Vine on Radio 2 and I spoke with various other people and we got the sort of the, the groundswell of let's move this forward, looking to work with Tesco's, getting um, so every time somebody bought something, they would have their carbon, the, the carbon footprint of all those products worked out and we worked out you could get points and you could create points, we could create league tables for schools, we got the whole thing set up. But it just didn't move because the whole where we were as an as a company, not a company, as a country, we weren't ready. So we weren't ready to hear that story. And it's very difficult. Sort of, you, I just felt so passionate that I really wanted this thing to go, but we we just wouldn't. We tried, you know, a couple of years, and and you know, so so we got some really good people in marketing and that sort of thing. It just it just didn't hit hit the ground. You know what's fascinating, Mark? I recorded a podcast recently with a, a lady that specializes in carbon literacy, and she delivers a course on food. 
and the mm. impact of food. And as you know, a, about a third of the climate change challenge is created by our food eating patterns, food production, how we feed animals, the type of animals that we prefer to eat and the methane that they produce, which, as you know, hangs around in the air for 12 years compared to carbon dioxide, which is about a year. And in the conversation I had with her, I asked her the question, I said, can a consumer go into the supermarket and effortlessly choose their food based on packaging and labeling, etc., that is going to be most friendly? And the short answer was not really. Whilst there are some kind of accreditations out there, there, is, there doesn't appear to be any type of universal standard, not in this country or not that I'm aware of in other companies. If anybody's listening to this and they, wants to, they want to contact us and correct us on that, we'd love to know. But do you know what, Mark? Well, I listen to you now and I'm, you explained that. I knew a little bit about it from our, our previous liaisons, but the time for what you created then is absolutely now because what I've learned about carbon literacy and like you, I've developed this huge passion. And for me, it's all about children's legacy. So, you know, in... 50 years time, the likelihood is that I won't be here. But what we do now, our children will inherit and our grandchildren and their grandchildren. And I don't want to be looked back on as someone that knew about this challenge and actually didn't try or contribute anything towards addressing it. And I found people turn their back on this subject, which we'll come on to. So I've got one colleague who'll remain nameless, works for a very big financial organization. He's a really good guy, really intelligent guy. And I said to him about my passion to try and get involved in, in this sector in some way and just do something, not necessarily about money, just to do something positive. And he said, oh, I find the whole subject quite depressing. And this is a really intelligent guy. And it was at that point I thought, okay, if we are going to work on, let's call it carbon literacy, we need to make it as simple as possible for people that have got busy lives, like to focus more on the positive things, push all negativity to, to one side. And food labeling, so people can go into a supermarket or a clothing department or a furniture department and mm -hmm. see a label on a product with the type of rating that you get on an energy product, your energy efficiency rating. What a wonderful opportunity to help under the heading of carbon literacy. So would you resurrect that, Mark? <laughs> so we, just to extend it a little bit, we looked at all the products that also would go into construction and we put together a school's league table, a um, university league table, shops league, league table, so like Tesco's, Asda, all those. I would absolutely love to. We've got all the contacts. We've got all the other stuff that was set up. It's all still sitting there. I think with Greta Thunberg and other people like that, it's just so wonderful to see. So I, I have been on a, an Extinction Rebellion march. I've been sat on Waterloo Bridge, nearly got arrested. Um, I thoroughly, thoroughly am committed to what we're trying to do. To I think, I think there's so much we can do, and I think the planet isn't doomed. I think animals are not doomed. I think we just have to find a way through, and there is an ability. So yes, and long answer to your question, um, I'm much, very, very happy to resurrect it. If there's people that listen to this and started, then I'll very happily work with them. Well, on a completely different subject, Mark, I won't mention his name in case he chooses that he doesn't want to get involved with us, but he's an MP for a region within Derbyshire, and he works with one of the ministers responsible for, for climate. Mm -hmm. And it would be very interesting, wouldn't it, for, for us at least to have a conversation around what you did in the past, the intellectual thought process around it, and the, the fact that this, there's this glaring gap. I mean, it's just so obvious, isn't it? 
that if we if we want to make carbon literacy easy for people, then we have to label things. We have to have some sort of accreditation process that's got integrity, a process that you can't cheat. So let's say, for example, you are um, a water retailer and you retail water and you put it in a, a plastic bottle and you claim that that plastic bottle is regenerated. It's important that there is a process to actually check that that's really happening, isn't it? Yeah. So that before that label appears on that bottle saying that this is you know, a climate-friendly bottle of water, that there is integrity behind that process. But I know there's a huge amount of work involved in actually implementing this, but the theory behind and the thought process behind it, to me, is in- incredibly simple. And I think there'll be an avalanche of companies that have moved towards being conscious of their impact that are already starting to map these things and are able to report. Essentially, what we'll need is some sort of ranking mechanism, some sort of algorithmic process that allows suppliers, companies, retailers, manufacturers to to be rated in the same way that um, an electrical appliance is, is energy rated. So let's park that for now, Mark, but as an action in my head, I'm going to reach out to the guy that I've got in mind and see if he'll talk to us. No, just on that one, David, the algorithms are already done. We'd actually set the whole league table up. And if anybody's listening and they're, they're, they're already you know doing this, then one of the problems we had was monetizing it. So people weren't interested because it either didn't look to save real money or it didn't look to make real money. And I think that's changed as well now. Uh, that's a good subject for us to get into, Mark, because I'm from the camp in life that believes that it's okay to make money on a project if the ultimate impact of that project is measurable and it's doing good. Because if there was no money whatsoever, no opportunity to earn in the climate change movement, let's call it, then you'd have lots of people that would turn their back on it even more. And we're seeing more and more now as another example I can give you. And and I know we digress, but it is fascinating. Chocolate, as you know, chocolate production is fairly heavy in terms of its impact. So there's a little company out there called Frankly Delicious, the UK company, and he basically manufactures environmentally friendly chocolate. Mm. And the guy's obviously doing that because there is um, an opportunity and there are people that care that will pay more and his chocolates i wouldn't describe it as being cheap i think it's up to kind of four or five pounds for a bar of chocolate where you might pay one pound fifty for a bar of cadbury's but there is a market for people who care so much they're happy to pay more for their food because ultimately they know that they are helping the planet so great news that you've got all that that platform still exists that you created and you've put mothballs on it for the reasons that you've explained so now let's have a look at, at, at revisiting that. So from the businesses that you work in now, Mark, and I'll allow you to sort of be as elaborate as you want to be about companies that you're working in now or that you've worked in in the past, what level of importance generally have you seen them attached to climate change and how is that manifesting itself into actionable plans? Is there a strong example of a company that sets a really good example that you either are working with now or that you have in the past? So, yes. Yeah, so the business that I run um, does a lot of consultancy work for the uh, National Health Service. It's actually, t- it's, it's always one of these things when somebody asks a question, you've got about five things going through your head. So we've done work for a plastics company, which is converting to being an environmentally friendly plastics company. And they've got a long road, but they're doing it and they've done an awful lot of work. And it'd be great to get them on board to talk about how they've made such a big difference. And, you know, being the the people that are the scourge of of the environment to being people who actually know we're making a difference because you can't not have containers to put things in. 
Um, therefore, what do we make them out of if we're not going to make them out of plastic or if the plastic's going to be environmentally friendly, all that sort of stuff. So there's that. But as I say, the, the other big one that we do an awful lot of work for is the National Health Service. So we help advise with regard to how they manage their estates and facilities. I was, I've been a director, I was a director for the NHS for about uh, 15 years, running various NHS trusts in terms of the director of estates and facilities role. And they are very much at the forefront of trying to make and are making a very, very, very big difference, a very big difference. And I'd say just quoting uh, um, Scotland yesterday, they, um, they produce 340,000 tonnes per annum of carbon. That is down by 62% since I think 1990, they said they've reduced that by that figure. Um, and their energy consumption is down by 43%. And Catherine, the lady who was giving the presentation said, cynics could say, well, it's because you sold off your estate. What has actually happened is the estate has actually grown since, the, since 1990. But the, so that shows the efforts they're making. And one of the, one of the issues they find with decarbonisation of heat, et cetera, um, they've still got 38% to go. They've got a target of uh, 2040, which is where they want to get to for carbon neutral. And they're saying this next 38% is going to involve everything. So they've, they've had the really big wins, which people don't see. So like um, heat pumps, heat exchange, solar PV, all the other massive things you can do, take, taking steam out, changing coal to electricity, all the things that are behind the scenes. Now, now they've got to do front of house stuff, and that's the thirty-eight percent of the, the Scottish uh, NHS estate. They've got to look at and say, right, you know, what things do people do, and what so staff, patients, visitors, um, driving, all those sort of things. What what have we got to change to get that thirty-eight percent? And that is a big, tough question. But I'd certainly say that the public sector um, has been at the forefront of, of really developing great changes. There's a lot of private sector companies that, that um, it'd be great to get those in to talk to us as well about yeah. the changes they're making. And in the um, university sector, I was listening to, I've got a, a colleague who's involved in, he's just been responsible for building a new campus in Birmingham for £750 million. And he, um, at the forefront of that is about carbon um, being uh, reducing the carbon footprint of that estate as well. Okay, f- uh, fascinating. So just quickly picking up on a question within the NHS, and mm. I appreciate this is probably different for the d- different trusts and the different hospitals who have each got their own procurement department. But in your experience of the ones that you've worked with, Mark, is there a scenario where every product that a hospital buys, a product or service, do they have a question, I guess, in, in the procurement process where they ask the supplier how that product measures up against climate change. Yeah, so in terms of procurement, yes, yeah, certainly at the trusts I've been, it's one of the questions on the tender documentation. Yeah. Is the environmental question, sustainability question. And that covers not only the product, but also the transport of the product and the waste that comes from the product. So they're strong in tackling the waste. So packaging, all that sort of stuff that comes. So it's it's... It's a really bureaucratic organisation. It has a lot of rules, but putting that aside, even though they've got all the rules, they have done really brilliantly. The, the lady who's been leading that for the last um, two or three years, Fiona Daly at NHSIE, she worked at Barts, and that's where I met, first met her, um, talking about climate change and introducing changes there. She's now there, one of her roles as the head of sustainability, and the changes that she's brought about 
through the work that she does is, is, has been excellent as well. An area that I know you understand probably more than most around is the energy side of things, because, of course, there is a product which we'll come on to talk about that your company, Estate Strategy Group, has. That product's called BrightCheck. And this is all to do with renewables, let's call it. So in your experience, Mark, what are the most effective methods for self-generation of energy in the UK climate? I'll just caveat that by saying, you know, we all know about solar, but we all know that we have lots of cloud in the UK in the winter. So with all that in mind, you know, in your experience, what are the best and most effective methods for self-generation of energy here in the UK? This is from slightly more than a layman but slightly less than a, an expert in um, this field. So I just want to, to uh, qualify that state, my statements. Yeah. So my opinion, when I've been, um, so I've, I've been involved in probably about uh, £20 billion worth of new build across the UK over the last 20, 30 years. So I've done quite a lot. I had quite a lot of experience of putting this stuff in. The things that, that you commonly have are the solar PV and the solar sort of ground stuff and like you said david it is dependent on sunshine it's also dependent on the products that you use so 20 years ago the products were a bit less effective than they are now they've got wind turbines but you need to have a big hill or somewhere where you can put the turbine on the heat pumps are a great idea now so these are they produce heat in a different way they pump it around the building and they replace the conventional boiler um so you can have ground source heat pumps so you can heat out of the ground or you can have air source heat pumps. The, the the thing is, though, I was listening to a chap yesterday talking about um, sizing these things, and you can actually it can actually cost a lot more to the environment because people oversize these products, and therefore um, the savings that you would have made are wasted by the hydraulics, the the hydraulic expertise that you need to put the thing in properly. Mm. So it's, it's okay, sort of, uh, so you have Bre- uh, a thing called Briam Excellent, Briam Healthcare, which is a building research establishments, um, and I can't remember the rest of it, but it's basically the measure for sustainability when you're building a building. And they'll say you need to put these things in, but you just have to be aware of what you're putting in and the efficiency and the, you know, how they work, because a lot of things, it's like, um, uh, I'm not sure I'm answering your question directly, but... It's a bit like uh, there was a great move to have biomass boilers with pellets. The problem is you have to get the pellets to the building. Okay. And a lot of the pellets used to get stuck in the machine, so they never get switched on. Um, or the, the, you couldn't find someone to store the pellets because you get through the pellets so quickly. You're, you're burning this stuff. So it's, there's all sorts of things. So, I would... Mark, I just wanted to sort of interject there on the biomass because I'm involved in a holiday resort, one of the directors in a holiday resort, which... Mm-hmm is serviced only by electricity so there is no gas in that area in north yorkshire and we had a company approach us with biomass and and pellets and from a company that essentially would install it and you are committed to pay for it but Mm. the way you paid for it would be through your energy savings essentially but the ultimate price label was about 200 grand. It was a lot of money. Yeah. We didn't go with it. And the reason we didn't go with it is because there was no certainty around the stability of the pricing of the pellets. Yeah. So the whole concept from a financial perspective for us, and when you're in business, unfortunately, sometimes you do have to sort of balance that compromise between wanting to help the climate and can you afford to do something. Yeah. And at the point, at that point, Mark, I said, well, what's the market for pellets? What is to say that the market price is just not going to go 
incredibly more expensive. There was and there was absolutely nothing. There were no price guarantees around any of that. So we rejected the proposition out of hand. Although we we could see that at that juncture in time, we could see that it could over ten years pay for itself. But the flaw was they couldn't tell us about any control over the price of the pellet. Well, let's now talk about batteries. In the last several years, there's been quite um, an evolution in the sophistication and the power of batteries. What do you know about that? People like Elon Musk and others who have put a lot of money into this have helped move this on incredibly. Um, if, if you imagine the uh, a drawing of a curve, which is goes up in the middle, so like a bell shape, it's called a bell curve. Yeah. The um, amount of electricity you use goes up in the middle of the day, or it may be a peak demand, and that's when the electricity is the most expensive. And the reason for a storage radiator is the, the you use the electricity from the cheapest time, and you put it into your storage, the radiator, and then it gives out the heat at the, the least. That's, that's the ideal. Um, with a battery, so forget about solar power, wind power, all that sort of thing. If supposing you're in a situation where um, you want to make a difference to the environment, mm. you um, have enough storage area, you can say take the peak electricity and the, the most cheapest electricity, put that into your battery storage, and then so as to reduce demand. When the peak of demand is on, you then use your batteries. That that then brings your bell curve right down, and that's uh, that's another way of impacting on the environment. However. The other thing is you can use solar PV, solar ground, ground source heat pumps, all sorts of things to produce electricity. And when you've got excess supply, you can put the excess supply into the batteries. And what you've got to work out is how long you can store that electricity for before it gets dissipated. Yeah. So that's, that's the issue I think people are working through at the moment mm. in that storage capacity. But there are some absolutely enormous batteries that have been built in this country, mm. I think Elon Musk as um, experimental areas, which are looking to um, to reduce the uh, requirement for fossil fuels to power electricity, and instead we're using sustainable methods of um, battery power. Yeah, so lots of van lifers who, are, for qualification of that term, a van lifer is someone that's given up their home, bought a van, converted it, and they live in it full time. Um, they put a solar panel or solar panels on the roof and they have lithium batteries that capture the energy and they have an inverter that allows them to run the type of home appliances that you and I'd be familiar with, kettles, microwave ovens, etc. But I hadn't thought about it, interestingly, from the point of view of if you're a business and you've got different tariffs and you've you know a night tariff, which is less expensive, the ability to actually capture some of that energy into batteries that you then use that stored energy, I think that's really clever. And again, something we can explore with some of the experts out there in the field so that we are providing some literacy around that subject because there's just it's just such a big subject, this mark, isn't it? Yeah, there's another, there's another um, product that I come across, um, a company called Curb Connect. You may have heard of those, David. Yes, I have, actually. Yeah, so they, they've got a contract to supply battery electricity to a whole fleet of cabs. And I can't remember if it's Birmingham or something like that. I'm sure if uh, they're listening, they'll... they'll qualify that um, and basically what you do is you drive you have a battery in the um, base of the taxi you drive it over the pad where the uh, battery charger is and in the same way you've got a mobile phone that you can now put onto a cradle and it charges the battery in the car charges as well so you have no 
cluster on the street. It's um, it's uh, environmentally friendly. It's connected up to the um, sustainable grid, and everything's green. Because the evolution of of electric cars is going at some pace, isn't it? With mm-hmm. we're seeing more and more electricity charging points pop up. In fact, the holiday resort that I've mentioned to you, we've just had a quote from one of the leading providers in the UK for two recharging points and cars typically now back to the the tesla example that we're kind of touching around the edges of you can now get these electric cars that do significantly over 300 miles which is you know one of the issues not that long ago was most of the cars would do about 100 miles and yeah. now they're up to being able to do 300 miles and the charging time frame are coming down aren't they all the time so at one point you'd probably be sat for two hours recharging Uh, which means that if you are time poor, it's a real challenge, but that's improving as well. Coming around, Mark, as we sort of look to bring this first episode to a a close, I think one of the things that we're probably demonstrating with some of our knowledge in some areas and us not being so hot in other areas, we're not professing to be experts on this subject by any means. But one of the biggest challenges that I see is the lack of, let's call it carbon literacy, amongst tens of millions of people. And I actually think if there was some sort of survey, some sort of census done that was designed to check our level level of literacy as a nation on this, it would be very low. Mm-hmm. How do you think we tackle that challenge, Mark? So my, I think um, you'd start with the people of about Greta Thunberg, Greta Thunberg's age and younger, and you'd start off with just making it part of the curriculum for schools, for colleges, for universities. It is already there. I think it's just, um, you know, you said you're talking to the MP. It'd be interesting to see what Gavin Williamson, the Education Secretary, etc., have got got it in, involved in there. Podcasts are great. Um, I think, uh, like I said, the, the organisation that I tried to start back in 2003, that was another way where when you're using any form of smart card, um, you'd get points for climate change. You'd be able to use those points on something else. I think it's the Extinction Rebellion and all those sort of things are really lifting up the, the understanding and the knowledge base of carbon literacy. What, what I, It's really important to me, David, and I, I, you said it when we first started, it is that we don't make it a negative campaign mm. because so many there are so many incredibly positive things that are coming out of this whole movement for sustainability and environmental management um, in, in wonderful ways. You know, we're getting garden cities, we're getting trees being planted everywhere, pollution's being reduced because we know we have to, uh, so that means asthma's reducing it will reduce. It's not reducing yet. We are actually tackling organisations on a massive scale. So the likes of Amazon, Google, Apple to say, look, you know, this is the tech industry you're in charge of. You have to be open and realistic. So they, they say they're carbon zero. But when I was listening to this um, podcast, they were saying, well, actually, it's, it's a hidden thing because they're not really. It's just they're, the companies they offset are, are producing loads of carbon. But the way they they record it, it looks like it's carbon zero. So it's about being open, honest. Um, I think where you you know you're going is with this as well. It's about education. Yeah, giving people the ability to learn. People are really excited, I think, and want to make a difference. Um, look at what happened with the ozone layer and the whole of the ozone layer. You know, we've actually I think um, I heard recently that um, 
is almost sealed up now. And I, I'm sure I'll be correct if I'm wrong, but I'm, I think it has. And that was simply because of the effect of raising the uh, awareness. So it's a bit of a rambling answer, but, um, you know, I think <laughs> that probably answer your question. Well, one of the things, Mark, that you've kind of really triggered me about with the thing that you created back in 2003 and the idea of people being rewarded with extra points by making environmentally friendly purchases. Financial incentive always comes into play, doesn't it? You've got people who are genuinely motivated by wanting to protect the planet for future generations. And there will always be this money-motivated proportion of people that need to be incentivized in some way. So I love the idea of your points-based system that, interestingly, most of the major supermarkets have got some sort of reward program. So certainly the likes of Boots have. Uh, you've got Iceland, you've got Tesco, uh, Marks and Spencers, uh, even Lidl now. I think I believe Aldi are in the process of thinking about creating some sort of reward program. So they've already got the platform in place that recognizes products or that can recognize products and, and allocate some points. The other interesting angle for us to maybe explore as well is that with the banks, um, particularly banks that have got a merchant servicing division. So I'm referring to uh, a small business that has a credit card or a debit card acceptance terminal. You know, in, in theory, at least, the bank could work with the merchant. The merchant could agree, opt into to going on some sort of, I don't know, climate carbon footprint evaluation process. And subject to the outcome of that, the bank could reward them with lower credit card processing fees. Yeah. And so there are lots of ways that big financial institutions can introduce financial incentive into the mix. So it's not just about those people who really just want to protect the planet. We're appealing also to people that want to be rewarded and compensated for the, for the effort that they put in. Final question then, Mark, and then we'll bring this first episode to a close is bringing this round to your company, Estate Strategies Group, which has been around for about 10 years, I believe. Yes, yeah, yeah. 10 years. Now, one of the products that you have is labeled and called Bright Check. Walk me through what that service is. Sure. So, we've used it on a number of sites. This is easiest to explain. Um, if you have a university campus or a hospital campus and a number of buildings, you know, you may be using or we've used it on private companies as well. So, it's not, not just public sector. You use generally use fossil fuels to generate heat and light, etc. And so what we work with an organization is to uh, get their half hour meter readings. And these are these are available to anybody that asks. So we work out what the power they're actually using the half hour meter readings. And then we would carry out um, a check in terms of the geotechnical area. So we'd look at things like the wind direction and strength, the land that you have available to maybe put various things on. We work out looking, uh, we can use Google Docs, we can use all the other various, Google Maps rather, all the other various apps that you can to look at a space from uh, an aerial photograph. We work out the roof space and also the surface areas that you've got that could be possibly used. We then put into a piece of software that we've created the half hour meter readings and all the geotechnical information. So it's a very simple process. And then out comes a report. And that report will say on your site, because of the amounts of phosphor you're using, you could actually um, generate energy using solar PV, solar uh, ground source. This is because of it, and it will show you where you could put these. So it's not only saying you could use it, we say, 
because of your roof space you can fit those on there you could use uh, ground source heat pumps you could maybe even if you've got a field nearby we could fit one or two turbines wind turbines and there's various other things that that we look at in terms of battery usage etc and so we'd say right this is the amount you're using fossil fuel wise this is the amount you could offset to a sustainable energy sources this is the payback you would get this is the stuff you'd have to fit the equipment you have to fit the infrastructure and these are the companies that you can go to and we can also organize a loan through the various organizations so you don't even have to if you carry on paying the same amount of money you are in the terms of the fossil fuel using the the gaps that we generate with a sustainable energy that pays back the loan so over five years you pay back the loan and then are thereafter it's all free uh, energy for you so that's the sort of thing that we can look at it's a very very quick and simple high level analysis um, once we've done the high level analysis then we'd have to go into much more detail about well how we can actually make this work for you but that's um, that's that's helped a, a lot of organizations look at their sustainability strategy and so what type of organizations that uh, may be listening to this mark what is the sweet spot for you in terms of the size of organization and the type of organization that you think would find that service of use set against their their other sort of resource challenges and priorities so um any organization that has either one or more fairly large building i would say and a large site and it can also we've looked at uh, pension fund companies which have multiple sites so we can do we can do a whole portfolio of properties across uh, and we, the product can be adapted globally so we're not restricted this com- company this country we can actually go abroad so we've done a work with a pension fund in southern ireland um, looking at their and out there analysis their information so it's it's going so um one or two houses wouldn't really benefit from a report like this mm. uh, if you've got some a pretty large building say it's a university or a, um, a factory or a um, shopping organization a hotel chain uh, an elderly person's center with more than one residence yeah That's- excellent well we'll make sure that we provide a link to the estate strategies group and that part of the business so that anybody that's listening and think you know what i'd be interested in talking to you more about that service the bright check service i think mark that's a, a great point to bring this first episode to a close i think what we've done is introduced ourselves we've demonstrated that we've got fairly deep knowledge in some areas and lots of opportunities to learn and improve in other areas but the the whole objective of the carbon change challenge and solutions podcast is for us to bring in experts in different areas and to allow the people who want to listen and go on this journey of carbon literacy with us can actually do that so i look forward to co-hosting future episodes with you the various different organizations and experts suppliers and companies out there yes thanks very much Dave. it's been uh, a real joy and I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting some of these people as well there's some excellent people who know a great deal of information real stuff that we can let's say we can do this in a positive way and there's there's so many great and fantastic ideas and i don't think we need to be worried about the, the future 
as long as we work together. Thanks to my co-host Mark Johnston-Wood for sharing his thoughts with us on the subject of climate change. In the weeks and months ahead, we'll begin to talk with experts from some of the different industry segments that we touched on in this first introductory episode. If you're listening and you have something of value to share in the climate change space and you're interested in appearing on our Climate Change Challenges and Solutions podcast, please drop us an email to david.lily at estatestrategygroup.com. That's in the show notes as well and we will respond to your email if you've enjoyed this first episode why not give us a positive review and hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss out on future episodes you've been listening to the climate change challenges and solutions podcast sponsored by estate strategy group with your hosts mark johnston wood and myself david Lilly. thanks again for listening